to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart, the podcast where we chat with athletes, coaches and industry professionals about the benefits of being involved in sport beyond performance. We are joined today by Australian Paralympic swimmer Matt Hunnepal. Matt has not only held a place on the podium at multiple international swimming competitions, including the London Paralympics, but is also establishing himself as a remarkable change maker for inclusion within the sport of swimming. Matt's passion and dedication for everyone to have access and be included within swimming really shines through in this chat. I certainly feel inspired to make a change and I hope you are too. Just a quick note, we recorded this episode during the first half of October whilst Melbourne was under stage four restrictions and we were in our five kilometre bubble. So you may hear a reference or two to that. Let's jump into it. So welcome Matt, how are you going today? I'm very well, thanks Fiona. That's good. Glad to have you on. We're very happy that you've been able to face some time out for us. No, it's good. And as I said before, before we started, it's, it's exciting that you're putting this together and bringing some attention to some sports and to sports people that uh, may or not always get attention and to people in the background. And it's exciting that you've uh, started this off. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's, it's what it's all about. We're just bringing the community together. Fantastic. Now, I'm looking forward to talking. Can you share with us a little bit about your sporting journey? It's a bit of a long story, really. I could be <laughs> here for a couple, a couple hours. But it started, I guess, for me in swimming as a way to alleviate a lot of my disability symptoms as well. I was born with cerebral palsy, sort of right hemiplegia. So the right hemiplegia means that my right arm and right leg and generally my right side of my body is affected with sensory degradation um, or lack of dexterity in my hands or flexibility in my limbs just generally on my right side and so when my mum was told about my diagnosis four months after birth she was told by the specialist that um, there was very little hope of what I might be able to achieve in my life at four months and particularly how cerebral palsy was seen in the 90s it was, you know, a pretty bleak pathway for many people in that space. You know, I didn't really know the limitations or also the, the benefits and what can happen with cerebral palsy. And at that time, a lot cerebral palsy was seen as an intellectual disability as well because there was a, a comorbidity quite frequently with intellectual disability and cerebral palsy. Comorbidity means, of course, dual disabilities. I was in the water for a pretty much straight from from birth to as I said to to try and limit the symptoms of my cerebral palsy and so um, it started off in learned swim as every every child in this country does and is an important aspect you know my initial period was learning how to swim and I, I guess mum really said and I believe this now that I just took to the water it was my space so that's what I believed in but um, I was probably one of those students in in your classes uh, Fiona that uh I would stick my head under the water and not listen to the teacher more often than not. Um, <laughs> the favourite ones. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I was probably more a difficult student very early in my learn to swim life. But uh, ever so slowly, I would, I would progress up the levels 
in my swim school in Wontana and move into a mini squad and then onto competitive swimming, you know, being able to taught to brief to my affected side. I was initially taught by some swim teachers to brief to my left, which is to my preferred side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then other swim teachers would teach me to brief to the right side. And so um, it wasn't until I found it found a, a, a really good swim teacher that also had some squad knowledge mm-hmm. that I started to really develop my stroke in, in, in sort of freestyle backstroke. was making some progression in breaststroke, but, um, you know, my kick was very much in my breaststroke, wasn't exactly aligned and sort of takes some time to get that right. I guess my first club in Lillardale Swimming Club, Kilsife Pool and the Dome there and... I guess that's the beginning of my sporting career and, and getting into a squad. You did your first international competition at 2010. Were you competing down locally much before that? Yeah, so 2005, I joined the Little Swimming Club and I spent five years learning, I guess, club-level competition, state-level competition, national age, and a little bit of national open. Mm-hmm. I was on my second national open uh, at the age of, uh, would have been 16, 15 at that stage. Wow. Because I was a sort of a late comer to the, you know, and this is probably a bit of a relation to the unknown of where multi-class and Paralympic swimming is for a lot of, a lot of people. My parents took a long time to find the, the right places to be for my involvement with competitive swimming, and that's still a problem today. I'll get to that a bit later. You know, I was, you know, 15, 16, sort of going to my first and second nationals. And that's where I was sort of selected for a junior uh, Australian team, if you like, and a bit of a a trip across to Berlin in 2010. It wasn't a major team in any way, but just an opportunity to give myself and a lot of others that were probably penciled in for, for London at the time to take them over, get some international experience and, yeah, just enjoy what it's like to, to be in a, in a high-pressure environment of international competition. To talk a bit about the Berlin competition, uh, it's the largest um, multi-class or para-sport swimming competition in the world. Wow. It actually has more athletes uh, and a broader amount of countries attend that competition than they have at the Paralympics because it's used by most many countries as a, a talent identification and you know, whet the appetite of most athletes. And so a lot of the junior athletes, a lot of the senior athletes will go to remain connected to the to high performance in, in the international fraternity. It's one of my favourite competitions, of course, beyond the Paralympics to go to. Less serious competition, but you also get to see all your international friends. And, you know, I've got a couple of friends in the UK that train over there and, you know, and they were made out of, you know, initially being part of that team in 2010 to Berlin. Wow. To go on from Berlin, 2011, I would go to Colorado and train and compete over at Colorado Springs at their US training center. So I spent sort of uh, three or four months over there. Bob Bowman's squad, and you had um, had Michael Phelps come and go when we were there as well. So we would share lanes with his squad and obviously Michael. Uh, so that was an experience and a half at 17 at the time to be training in and around the probably one of the largest and biggest names in, in swimming at the time. In the probably world. Still is. <laughs> yeah. Bob Bowman's squad's got a number of para swimmers or, you know, had a, um, that did have it at the time. 
it was good for many of the you know, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds that were just coming onto the team. An opportunity to, to meet some of the legends in both Olympic and Paralympic sport from the US. Yeah, it's, and we, then we get to sort of London. Yeah, so London was in 2012 and you came away with two gold medals from London. But I want to find out a little bit about like what was the prep like leading into it? Yeah, so returning back from, this is 2011, returning back from, from Colorado Springs, you know, I had moved, at that stage I'd moved from the Lildale Swing Club into Nutterwadding. Mm-hmm. And to back to back up a little bit, moved in to to Nutterwadding in 2010 when I was selected to Berlin pretty instantaneously, because uh, Lula Swimming Club is a fantastic swimming club for grassroots. But mm-hmm. when it, it does get to a point when you need to be, and you and you're fully aware of this, Fiona as well, is that um, it does get to a certain point that when you are um, at a, uh, you know, at an elite stage in your career, you do need to move from the grassroots into a more of a medium size or high performance club. Yeah. And so I was coached by Amanda Isaac and Rowan Taylor through basically 2010 and then into to London. So that was my sort of preparation and you know, sort of people that were <laughs> training at the Nunawani Swimming Club at that time was Liesl Jones, Michael Klim, those guys that were trying to throw their hat in the ring uh, for a sort of final um, yeah, that's the last hurrah for Michael as well. Obviously, Michael was uh, not selected to that team. For my disability, it was really, and for my times, for freestyle, I'd be racing time trials against Liesl. Liesl <laughs> and I had the same pacing, albeit a different stroke. Yeah. We were the, the same pacing for 100 meter freestyle for me and 100 meter breaststroke for her. And so... Saturday mornings, we'd do time trials at Nunawadding and Liesl Jones was my training partner, so I'd be able yep. to pace up against her. There was very few people that, within the squad that had race suit-on times mm. at training that were similar to my own, and she was the closest to that. The experience cool. and men- mentorship that comes with that yeah. is, pretty, is pretty cool. But uh, both Amanda Isaac and, and Rowan Taylor, who's now obviously the head coach of the Australian team, mm. Uh, are very hard taskmasters and they're very well known for that. And mm-hmm. so coming from a very grassroots club of Lillardale and to, to go to probably the most well-known club in Australia was a big uh, and fast learning curve um, yeah. as, as a 16, 17-year-old. And you learn to grow up very, very quickly if you're not growing up uh, in that squad. So that pressure is not only known to you as an individual, but known to your entire squad that be ready to sink or swim in that squad, be mm-hmm. ready to work hard. And if you're not ready to work hard, there's plenty of other squads and other clubs yeah. <laughs> around to do that. So that's the sort of shop that both Rowan and Amanda ran at the time. These were two very passionate coaches that wanted to get as much people from Nunawadding onto the team in London as possible. Mm. Many of them were at the last shot of the pie, so to speak. Trials uh, for London was in Adelaide and we, of course, had Ian Forp trying to throw his hand in the ring for the final time. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the stands were full every night, every morning for that reason. I don't want to say it was only him, but there were certainly a number of different athletes off the back of probably Jeff Hugel's success in 2010 after losing all that weight and mm-hmm. then coming back and having great success at the Commonwealth Games. 
And so that probably inspired quite a lot of different athletes to come back. A really great exercise to part of that another one in squad going to trials in Adelaide and full stands. Uh, you could, for the first time ever, you were hearing the crowds in the water. It's very here. Yeah. Hard that that would happen at nationals. It happens at, at international competitions, but certainly not at and that nationals you just hear the water going past your ear but this time you could hear the crowd on top of that that would be insane <laughs> that's a bit unnerving going through to rio that is something that was extremely um hard to focus on it's probably mm. one of the most you had to throw the factor of the crowd in mm. at, at both london and rio but more so rio because rio home games stay incredibly proud of their countrymen Mm -hmm. Olympics, Paralympics, doesn't matter. If you've got a flag from Brazil, they will go berserk. And I was in the relay particularly. So we were doing the 20-point relay, which is uh, sort of the lower or more severe class relay, uh, the Paralympics and uh, in, in, in Rio. And we were racing side by side pretty much with the, the Brazilians. And that was a, um, you know, you're trying to do a changeover with 20,000 people screaming in your ear. It just doesn't, it's, you can't focus on it. Wonderful and exhilarating experience, but you're trying to focus on that changeover, but you know, and making sure you can do it fast, do it safe. Mm. And also when you've got the starts as well, when they've been, the officials blow the whistle, you meant to have silence in the, in the aquatic center. We could not get silence in the aquatic center in, in Brazil. We were being stood up onto the blocks and stand down many times before races because they couldn't shut up, frankly. Did that but anyway, you off? On the first time where I experienced it, yes. Mm. So that was the 100 backstroke, which is not too bad because you're in the water to do mm. your start. But you're being brought on and off the backstroke ledge. Mm. You put your feet back into the gutter, up mm. on the pad again. It's back and forth that cycle can be a bit unnerving, but once you knew it was a factor for your second and third and fourth races, it was a bit easier to sort of get used to. But I digress. So we're talking about London and that trials was an amazing experience and London more so as well as the first games, but also still is known as probably the most successful Paralympic games I've ever seen. Yeah. There was a great advertisement was done by Channel 4, Channel 4 in the UK. And Channel 4 was the, the host broadcaster in, in the UK for the Paralympics. And they had an advertisement. It was on billboards across the, across the country. And it read in black, nothing else. Thanks for the warm-up Olympics. Oh, I remember seeing that. A bit of a cheeky dig. The Olympics was not the main show and the Paralympics would come two weeks later mm. um, was the main show. And the results show there was more people watching the host broadcaster at the Paralympics than there was the Olympics in that mm. year. That's amazing. But the inverse of that was the case in Rio, which for those who haven't seen the uh, documentary Rising Phoenix on Netflix, great uh, opportunity to look at the history behind the Paralympics, but specifically looking at the um, success of, of the London Games and the political issues in the country of Brazil in the lead up to Rio, mm. um, the financial piece behind what happened and was the Paralympics going to run at all because it was sort of seen by the Brazilian government as the cheaper cousin. 
that was a, and I, I must say, I wasn't really aware of those issues because we were in Lanta at the time uh, in pre-med training. You know, I had to secure $250 million in funding to be able to make sure it had occurred. There was a very real chance, and I didn't notice at the time, there's a very real chance we would have could have gone home from Atlanta and not had a Paralympics to go forward to. Wow. So the team management were very, very quiet on that. So we could just focus on what was important, which was preparing for a, a games that may, underscore, may occur. A lot of us weren't watching the news around that at that time. Yeah, well, they'd try and keep you guys protected because I know after London, there was a lot of talk and it might not have been in the para side of it, but there was a lot of talk um, about the athletes getting distracted. Mm. So maybe they were, you know, protecting everyone in general after the lessons they learned in London. I think London and what occurred with the Olympic team, um, we can still see a lot of that still today in terms of the culture of the team, mm. both in the Olympic and, and Paralympic. And I can say that now um, from, I guess, the outside now, I sort of have started to wrap up my career. There's been a very big cultural shift, not just within the team, but also within the management of Swimming Australia and, and others. And that's an exciting thing. You know, there's still a lot of development needed within the youth, the youth team and and also, you know, how serious Swimming Australia takes open water as, as an exercise. There's more need for development in that space mm. um, as there is for Paralympics. We've got a great opportunity now with Tokyo, should and if it occur, um, <laughs> and still a big if. One of the biggest things now we're thinking about with Tokyo is that, is it occurring or isn't it occurring? And so a lot of athletes, you know, while... The Tokyo Olympic you know, Committee is saying it will occur. There is a lot of nervousness within a lot of the athletes that, you know, should I be considering retirement? Should I be focusing on moving into my, you know, a professional career in work? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, you know, Tokyo was going to be my last shot. Yeah. I, I, I guess the feeling from the, fr- the, the fraternity at the moment is that if Tokyo doesn't happen, they'll just cancel it and move on to, to Paris because just getting too close in terms of the calendar to the next games. Yeah, so if it doesn't happen next year, it's kind of got to be scrapped, um, I would think. So hopefully it does, and I do hope for, you know, there's a lot of benefit that I feel that there's going to be in Tokyo, and from all accounts that the games would have been quite exciting um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, technology use in particular and how that can be used within sport. You're working with... School Sport Victoria, is that right? Yeah, so I, I, in an, I guess a non-paid capacity, I would say. So my involvement with School Sport Victoria is an ambassador to athletes within the school, so I guess, system. doesn't really matter what sport it is. The other part of my involvement with School Sport Victoria is the uh, Sport Excellence Scholarship Fund, which is a scholarship program to enable people of low socioeconomic backgrounds to get some support to go to Team Vic teams. Wow. So stuff like $750 scholarships to be selected. And out of that, as part of the, if they get a scholarship, is they get an assigned mentor mm-hmm. of any of the athletes within the, I guess, the athlete ambassador program. And there's lots of people in this. So it's myself, um, Brooks you Stratton. know, Brooke Stratton, there's, yeah, you, you, can, you can look up the list on the website. There's mm-hmm. about 15 or 20 of us, and that's growing every day. And 
School Sport Victoria have always said that you don't have to be past or present. You don't have to be a gold medalist or not to be part of this program, but it just gives an opportunity for athletes to mentor athletes. Yeah. Past or present. There's a couple other people in, within the ambassador group which aren't athletes, but are more sort of professors in physical activity. And, wow. you know, they do mentorship of coaches, administrators as well. So the scope's really growing a little bit. The other thing is that, you know, it's part of School Sport Victoria program is we go out to schools and run PE classes and and the like do presentations and tell our story and we still do that you know the basic I, I say basic but the core what is core business yeah. for that program which is going out to schools and the, our primary purpose is is always going to be the, the core business of going out to to schools not going always to the, the Turax schools of the world or it's going to, I guess, the blue-collar schools, which are out sort of Packham Way or yeah. and beyond, and that don't always get the attention um, in this space. And they just need a bit of an opportunity to, to meet a few people. It's the same sort of policy that the AFL has used when they send their players out to schools is they don't always go out to the top drawer of schools. They go to schools that don't always get that attention. So they go regional and they go to, you know, outside of Metro Melbourne. Um, yeah. I did one out in, in Wangaratta not long ago, pre-COVID, of course. But um, well, so like I keep saying, <laughs> last time I had an opportunity to get out of the house, I went to Wangaratta. That's probably the best <laughs> way to say that. But uh, no, the school sport pr- program is a great thing and, and so is this, the Sport Excellence Scholarship Fund. And, you know, we're constantly looking for, don- for don- donations in that space as well. You know, so corporate bodies as well, schools, clubs. You know, we're always willing to take donations. It's a charity as such. It's just a charity arm of school sport and mm. without it, we can't do the, the work that we do and we've had some great supporters and to work with Mac as well as one of the other ambassadors as well from a swimming perspective has been really, really good. Mm. Um, he's great to go on the road with. It's, I guess, a bit of a side business to what I do with City of Monash now and so my day-to-day work is within diversity and inclusion and within a recreation setting to get people with a disability, people from multicultural backgrounds, people from the LGBTIQA plus community, uh, get them involved and also the age population as well, get them involved in physical activity. Yeah. And so that's something that is quite passionate for me and I'm carrying that work through now with the work I'm doing with Swimmy Tour as, as one of the board directors there and some exciting things coming up in the next couple of weeks which we'll be able to hopefully announce but it carrying on the work that we've seen in swimming you know when I was a kid would be good to see development for people with disability and other areas you know our membership growth within multi-classes has sort of dropped um, steadily over the over recent years and I was talking to another colleague who had been swimming yesterday, day before, and you know, he was saying that if we were to add one person with a disability or one person from a multicultural background into a swimming club, we would triple the inclusion-related fields, mm. members overnight. Wow. Just, and that's just because the numbers are currently so low and we just need to take just one club, one person. Yeah. And... But the focus, I feel, needs to be more on the severe sort of and the higher needs disabilities. If we're talking about disability, the higher needs, I think. Yeah. The flow through for this is to get competitive swimming and give them grassroots experience for more people with severe impairments. But the flow through effect is that we're able to engage higher needs people with disability to eventually become Paralympians. 
Mm. The difference between us being fifth in the world in the Paralympic swimming and us being back on number one Mm. is us being able to fill the classes that are of severe level. Our class system for Paralympic goes from S1 to S10 Mm -hmm. for physical disability, S11 to S13 for uh, visually impaired, S14 for intellectual. And so from S7 upwards makes up 85% of our Paralympic or multi-class membership in this country. And is that the less severely affected, the higher it is? Correct, correct. So when you look for S5 and below, which is your more severe classes, that makes up 15% of our membership. Wow. Now, we haven't had an S... Short of Ahmed Kelly and Scooter Patterson, Mm. uh, which are pretty well-known in the swimming fraternity, so short of those two, there isn't currently any member on the Australian Paralympic team or in the in the pathway to become a Paralympian that are of those lower classes. The difference between us being fifth in the world and first in the world is... Having them in the system to come up to be there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So if we can identify those more severe or high-needs cases, while that it might be a bit difficult for coaches and clubs to stomach initially because it is high-needs, that's the difference between us being fifth and first in the world. Because every other, if you look at every country like China, Ukraine, Russia, they can actually almost just, just fill the positions. Mm. They can fill every class because they do have a diverse uh, system. But it's also a case of parents that do have severe children with a disability to know that they actually can be part of that. Mm. So that brings me to participating in the swimming. You've gone through your, you know, two-time Paralympian. What benefits has sport provided you as an individual? I'd say more often than not, they put the high-performance swimming aside, put the success aside. It's the social aspect. And also I'll take out, of, you know, as I approach retirement, I haven't said it formally yet, um, probably don't feel comfortable enough to sort of say it, nor to myself or to anyone else at this stage, but I would say I'm in that transition phase. Yeah. To reflect on 98% of my career um, so far, I'd say that, you know, the social aspects, the people you meet, people you get to see, not just in this country, this mm-hmm. state, but also around the world. I can drop in and have a coffee, but also stay a few nights at one of my mates' place in Germany, for example. That's, I guess, a benefit to it. Once you boil it all down, I think that's the most beneficial part of it. Mm. It's that home network. Well, I called them my family and my teammates may listen to this or they may not, but they were, when I was 16, they were all forced to be my family. Some of them still are. Yeah, I totally resonate with that social aspect of it. Yeah, and I guess as well, sport is the greatest equaler, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I didn't say this off the top of my conversation as well, but the biggest thing I found coming into the sport as well when I was sort of 12, 13 was that I had very few friends at school um, Mm. and that was set back from, I guess, being, inverted commas, a bit different. But once I got into the school system, sorry, school system in sport, but also, you know, sport and swimming in a club environment, I felt I could be more of myself. Yeah. Um, 
your various state championships just with them as uh, just with the Ablebots too. So it's not a you know you're being included and but also you know I, I think that that would have been you know I was in a club with someone at the time when I first joined that was an S4, so quite severe. Yeah. And so his social interaction with the rest of the squad on reflection probably wasn't as successful as my own. Mm. Um, so it was that, that just that unconscious bias that still existed. And I guess I can only say that now because, I, you know, of all the things I do and I feel that there's still a long way to go in terms of accepting people with a disability within club community. But because I was probably more of the milder cases, I think I had a better shot at that. You know, that's what a lot of the work we're doing to change that. And it's definitely great work. I think it's it's even changed since when I started swimming. So it is changing and we, we are getting there. Mm. You know, to talk about another thing as well, and it's also women in sport since, I guess, you left formally the sporting fraternity, uh, Fiona, in terms of a, an active swimming setting. Mm. You know, women's sport has come through in cricket, in, um, in the AFL and in others. Yeah. You know, of course, we're been a male-female sport since way <laughs> since the beginning. Mm. But there is still a sense of disparity between men and women within this sport and in every sport. And I feel that's something that also needs to improve. Well, even not so much in the learn-to-swim setting, but I found it as an up-and-coming coach, being female and being young. And don't get me wrong, I had some great male mentors, but there were those people that did dismiss me because mm. I was female and because I was young and my way of doing it might have been a little bit more high-pitched and with a smile on my face. But, you know, I'm even seeing that change a little bit in recent times. Mm. Yeah. But I think as well, once you have that conversation about, you know, women's participation, it's about how you dress the transgender thing. That's currently the biggest issue mm. in sport. How to deal with it how to make that culturally accepted yeah. within all of sport and how, how do you do that? You know, we had examples of people in athletics, people in AFL very recently, or when I say very recently, in the last two or three years, we still have this conversation about testosterone levels within Olympic sport mm. for those. That, the females are too high. And, yeah, look, I don't even know the answer to that. I don't know if there is a way to, to deal with it at the Olympic level, but certainly at the grassroots, it should be just like, okay, compete in the gender you, you feel most comfortable in, wear what mm. you feel most comfortable and go for it. But we haven't probably seen enough acceptance in our swimming community specifically yeah. where that could be accepted. And due to that, we don't have people in our sport. Yeah, I get where you're coming from and I can see... I never really thought that it was a huge, huge issue, but, you know, I've not been competitively swimming for years, so mm. I probably haven't seen the big gap that it could have caused in the last five years, really. Mm. But I think about how many more people could be getting the benefits that me and you got from participating in swimming if we were a bit more inclusive. Yeah, correct. And it's... I come back to my original statement I said before is that sport, but also swimming in general needs to start thinking that inclusion is not disability only. Mm. You know, too many people say, okay, we've got an access and inclusion policy. We've got a diversity and inclusion policy being true. It only means we 
allow people with ASD into our swim school. You know, in the swim school space, and, and you know this, Fiona, is that we talk about autism swim as an organisation. You've done your qualification and I've got one module left. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I won't take it away. Autism Swim, Autism Swim is an organisation. The course they do for those swim <laughs> teachers that are out there, go and do it. It's great. Yeah. But it pushes the, the swim schools to think that that is the only as far as they need to go in disability inclusion or inclusion in general. And it's not. It's not. I've said this to Swim. I've said this publicly, you know, our registration bodies, OzSwim, Swim Australia, ASTA, still focus on the access and inclusion course as an extension. Mm. There's nothing about access and inclusion or inclusion in general within the general course. Yeah. I feel like the extension courses should be used to be able to build on knowledge already built on, yeah. established within the general course for specialised situations. Yeah. So that might make the course more expensive, the general course more expensive, and it might need more detail into it, but at least everyone gets to a baseline. Yeah, and it means all teachers will be somewhat equipped, even if it's not the severe level, they'll be somewhat equipped to handle more students. When we talk about the Lifesaving Victoria guidelines for safe pool operations, for example, that is a current requirement is that every staff member that teaches a child with a disability has to have the extension course. Yeah. Period. Mm. They can't, they can't legally do it. Yeah. I am vehemently against that. As long as they have the skills yeah. and they have the knowledge from somewhere, whether in-house training or it's from doing some level of autism swim or whatever, that should be enough. This is something that is aquatics in general, competitive swimming, so swimming in Victoria and all of our industry bodies have some responsibility in this space and pigeonholing disability as inclusion is just not the way to go. It's also a cultural shift that we can take down at the grassroots. Like I know you're working in a leadership position and so am I. And if we can educate, you know, the five, six, 10, 20 people under us, then the flow on effect of that is going to help as well. Yeah. And I think that there needs to be more done by the whole aquatic fraternity. And it's not just Swimming Victoria that can lead the charge within. Because at the end of the day, Swimming Victoria can only control the competitive swimming space. Mm. They can't go into learn to swim and dictate the way it should work. Mm. So this thing as well is that a lot of clubs in Swimming Victoria are worried that they won't have students coming from learn to swim to become members yeah. because of COVID, for example. That has been a problem, similar scenario with people with disability mm. for 15 years because there hasn't been that connection and that link between learn to swim and competitive clubs. Yeah for people with disability. I only got to the Paralympics because at the time, within Swim Victoria and others, there was the connections, the, the resourcing and the information for that to occur. Yeah. It was a strike of luck. You'd say so. If I was to come into the sport now as a, as a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old, as a person with disability, I would probably be lost to the sport because there's not enough information to find if I want to continue through swimming, I wouldn't know where to go. My parents wouldn't know where to go. Mm. I don't think we're much further forward than we were 15 years ago. 
So do we then need to educate the swim schools rather than the clubs or both? It's a bit of both. Mm. I think Swim Victoria needs to do their job from their end, but also Swim, Swim Australia, ASTA needs to do their job yeah. from the swim, the swim school and say, right, you guys both have to meet in the middle here. Mm. Both organisations have a responsibility in that and I guess they need to come together to best get the outcomes for the community. Yeah, and keep the kids in the sport for longer. Mm. Correct. So is there a lesson you've learnt along the way that you want to share? either to parents, to up-and-coming swimmers, to anyone, you know, you've studied some sport management, anyone interested in that, like any avenue? Yeah, so my first thing to parents and, and, to, and to swimmers that are coming up through people from all areas is that if you want to do, do swimming and you're serious about it, go and have a chat to your local club, go and or speak to your local centre because 98% of centres in this, in this state do have a, a swim club attached to it. Mm. There's, very, there's very few centres in Victoria that don't have a club attached to it. So if you're interested, that's a place to start. Talk to your swim school. They're likely to know who to go to. Yeah. For those that want to study sports management, for example, go and do it. It's a great place to start. But also use your sport connections to drive your employment opportunities as well. Yeah. Stick your hand up. Internships are the biggest way into a job. Volunteer time because where it's in a swim school, where it's in a club setting, CV building is important very early after your degree. Yes. And volunteer work is a very good way to do that. Yeah. Because it will lead to your first gold mine of, of a job. As well, get involved in your local club committee or board. Be the game changer for your community. Look at what your club, not just t- ticking the box and doing what does day in, day out. That's standard day business as usual. Mm. But looking at what your club can do, what your swimming club can do, what your sw- learn to swim organisation can do to take it one step further to helping the community. You've got to look at yourself, look at what you stand for and say, am I doing the most I possibly can do to help my local community. Mm. If he answers to no, work out what your gap is and do it. Yeah. And just start somewhere. Like you might just be volunteering to be an official somewhere or I don't um, know. I did the officials course and didn't particularly stick to it, but um, I was a register for our swim club committee for a while. And as a register as well, you know, you hold the keys to the membership. So, yeah. you know, you've got an opportunity to be able to work out, well, how do I, how do I boost my membership? Mm. If you've done a sports management course and you've done a little bit of sports marketing, yep. that's the way to go. You know, if you use your skills there, but also go knock on the door of Swimming Victoria or even Swimming Australia and say, okay, I want to engage this, this, and this population. Who do I go to? Because it's likely, well, it's likely your state body will know some communities to speak to within your area yeah, that's awesome. And have you, you've been obviously involved in a lot of projects where sport's been used as a tool to develop the community, but has there been one that's really made your heart glow? There's one thing I'm working at, I guess, within work at the moment, which is about disability employment, which is to um, skill train and develop people with disability, primarily intellectual disability, to give them the OzSwim qualification, the uh, life-saving lifeguard qualification, 
uh, CPR first aid, mm-hmm. and then skill them on site within our aquatic center, then to say, hey, good, you've got the skills now, we'll help you find a job, whether it's with yep. us or elsewhere, or elsewhere, whether it's at, at Fiona's, at your swim Fiona's school, or if, yeah. or if it's a park, or it's at Casey Race, or whatever, we'll help you find a job somewhere. Yeah. Because the only way that culture within a workforce changes about disabilities by having someone of disability Correct. in your centers themselves. And so that program uh, kicks off next year. And so from a project that I will make my heart glow, mm-hmm. it's when I'm able to distribute 10 graduates from this program across rec centers and across different swim schools and sporting facilities across the state. That'll be That's the... awesome. That'll be one. And then there'll be 10 the following year, 10 the year after that. So, and we're hopefully other swim schools, other, other organizations are happy to, to sort of take the framework that we've developed and yeah. run it themselves. But we're quite keen to do it. To start with it a bit off. Of quali- Yeah, and a bit of quality control as well and be able to develop a framework that everybody's happy with. Yeah, well, that's really good. And I obviously know your involvement in sport from the past few years. I think you're the right person to be doing that <laughs> i trust you know <laughs> what would come out of the other end yeah no i, I appreciate that um, Fiona. It's, it's good that i don't do what i do just to to tick boxes you know i do to, to change the community and that's what I, do. I, I push for as an athlete that's what i push for as a professional today and hopefully we can get some really good outcomes in the future yeah and that leads us in where do you see the future of sport 2024 mat swimming that's going to be the next thing mm. you know you know in and out within two hours new south wales swimming's trying to, is just starting to they've got the new south wales swim league um and so that is something that is a huge opportunity for them in new south wales but i feel that in victoria we can do something similar which we're in and out within two, within two hours and i feel that it's really important that we do have other opportunities within you know sport to really give parents more time back in their weekends. Yeah. To be at a swimming facility between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. on some occasions because mm. you've got three kids who do different events, who do di- or different age groups. Yeah. You've aired all day and... And they might only have, between all of them, 10 swims and that's a very long time to watch 10, 30-second to a minute to two-minute races. I know my mum missed some of my races because she'd be reading her book and I'll be like, mum, did you watch? And she's like, I saw the board and I saw that you got a PV and I'm like, but did you see this? And she's like, missed it. Or she'd be walking around Albert Park Lake because it's so long and she had no Mm. other interest, especially when we only had a few swimmers from our clubs. And, you know, swimming is great from a, from a scheduling point of view that you know right down to almost a minute if mm-hmm. they're running on time. Um, however, very rarely do swim meets run on time. Yeah. Um, so it's just a, unless it's a national or international meet, which is down to the second because of broadcasters. Look, it's, you know, fun relays uh, would be a great thing to, to look at. You know, doing eight by 50 relays. Very cool. Mixed as well. Have, to do mixed mix is got a, is now an Olympic event, so that's something we do as should be doing the standard as a medal event. Uh, you know, let's go back to how we used to do things in school swimming. You and I both did school swimming as well, and you know, it was the good old pool boy races. Or mm. you know, like we can be a little bit silly about it, I think as well, and say, hey, let's just take it back to fun the way. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that if we continue to play swimming as a test cricket style sport, yeah. which which takes us all day, especially post COVID, I don't know if that's going to work. Mm, especially I, I, now that people are used to having free time or time with their mm. families. Yeah, we can't take up 10 hours of their day on a Saturday and then potentially go back on a Sunday because they really want to get that state or national time. I'll, and I'll also say this as well, coaching as well. Coaches do more than 38 hours a week, mm-hmm. both on the pool, around the pool, planning, etc. Now, coaching can be a pretty lonely job. I feel that uh, the husbands and, and wives of, of coaches... I've been coached by many coaches, but you know, I've also seen relationships fall by the wayside due to coaching being such a priority and a love for these coaches mm-hmm. and putting coaches putting their swimmers first yeah. over their over their relationships, which is admirable, but it's uh, a common issue in this scene is that coaches deserve their weekends back, is what I'm trying to say. Do we need to be trained ten sessions a week? Does is that really required anymore? And and we're seeing that we've the it, we had the Queensland State Championships or a Queensland Metro Championships up not long ago, there were kids breaking Queensland records off after four weeks. Lockdown. After lockdown, after four weeks. And mm. not swimming for the best part of five months. So is there any truth that they need to be trained 10 sessions a week? I that could change the sport. Oh, maybe yeah. for the better. Like maybe they will keep those older kids. Maybe we'll get more kids in because it's such a time commitment to be a swimmer and mm. parent wise as well. Like I know it drove my parents mad having to take mm. me to the pool and the day I got my license was the happiest day of my mum's life. But maybe that's something we can really look into and help make our sport a little bit family friendly. Yeah. I honestly think you know, I make the analogy of test cricket against 2020. Mm-hmm. The days of test cricket are gone in this sport in swimming. You know, while we might have to have state championships, we've done in a, a series, mm. in a series where your age groups get broken up because you can't have more than 200 or so. That's been very hopeful of the current COVID situation to have more than 200 people on site at one time. So you're going to have to break 11s and 12s, 13s and 14s, 15s and 16s all up in different weekends. Mm. And by nature, you're going to be, because there's no many, not as much athletes, you're going to be doing two-hour sessions when you reduce the maximum entry count, which happens in most club meets to say 600 or 500 splashes, you might be able to get a better result. But I think that that is something that's needed and will be part of our future for a very long time, I think. It's not an awful part. Like I'm kind of excited to see it change a little bit and become, Mm. you know, a little bit more family friendly, a little bit, not the quality. I don't want the quality to go, but mm. a bit short and sweet and you can then go do something in the afternoon if it's a morning meet. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you, if you, even if you do a morning meet as well, people coming from Geelong or, or beyond to come to AMSAC, that is a day trip. Yeah. You know, you want, if, if, we've, if we've got so grandparents up in Melbourne, for example, you want them to be able to spend, do a swim meet in the morning, drive down to, I don't know, Richmond or wherever your grandparents live, Go and say hello to them, spend the afternoon with them and head home. So you can make a bit of a, you know, spend time with some people that you love in Metro Melbourne if they're from regional, which, you know, many families do have. Yeah. And you mentioned before, like, where you see the parasite of things. You obviously want to see 
more come in through the grassroots. We ditched the classification system from under 12s. Yep. How you do that to make sure that there is some competitive level to it, we'll see. In the same way about transgender, when racing and medals don't matter, we don't need a classification system. Mm. That's a pretty important thing, I feel, is that we've got to get rid of the classification system at that age because you don't need it. Not until you get to national age even. Our state for multi-class doesn't hold as much prestige as it does for able-bodied people. The national age and national opens where the big things happen. So you could probably get away with it at state level, not having a classification system, I feel. Maybe it's state age. State open, you might have to do it, but you might not even need it at school level. But again, it's... The grey area f- we'd have to try out. It's just where you start and stop that. That's yeah. the question. But I, I feel like there does, especially the courage meets. Encourage meets, for example, shouldn't have gender or age groups. You know we used to do when we were kids? We used to do aggregates. Friday night racing with just our club. Yeah. That's yeah. the way that we need to turn encouragement meets into is get rid of the the age, get rid of the medals, get rid of the gender, get rid of every prescriptor that we have mm. and just make it about racing. And that's what get it should a PB be. ribbon. Correct. Yep. The only time you're racing against is your PB time, which is your entry time. That's it. Yeah. I've still got mine somewhere. They're in a little, I've put them all in a box when the London Olympics was happening. So I've still got all my yeah. medals and my things in a London box. I don't know where it is somewhere. But yeah, yeah I think that we should bring that back because that's what made me love swimming. Yeah, that's no, a, it's a good thought. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights and your thoughts and a little bit of insider information as to what some of these amazing bodies in Victoria are doing. And I hope that you do prep for 2020 slash 2021 Tokyo Olympics and it does go well. Yeah, well, let's see. I think my my professional career is starting to take a bit more of a priority in some of the bigger projects, but I'll always be involved in competitive swimming in some way or another. I was brought up and born in this sport. I will die in this sport. So it's something that I will have been for a very, very long time. One way or another, should I say. Oh, well, I'm really excited to see what you're going to do in this sport, Matt. This is amazing. (laughs) Thanks, Fiona. Thank you for listening to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. If you'd like to be on the show, please send us a message. We would love to hear from you. Until next time.